Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Well, if you would go ahead and get your Bibles open, we're back in the same passage we were in last week, 1 John uh, chapter 3. We're going to read three verses, 1 through 3. Uh, we're going to continue in that same passage, and we're going to continue with our similar topic. Again, if you've missed anything in this series, this is our last week. The struggle is real. I pray that y'all have enjoyed it. I wish I could ask you, and I can hear your feedback right now, but I pray that you've enjoyed the struggle is real, but dot, dot, dot. Because all of us are struggling in many different ways, and we're going through it, especially in this pandemic and, and, and all that's happened in these last three months where God has kind of allowed the, the covers of our heart and even the cover of society in terms of injustice and racism, kind of pull it back to where we have to work with some of those struggles and things in our hearts. So I pray that you've been wrestling through all of these things with us. And if you've missed any of the sermons, go back throughout the last several weeks and listen to uh, the struggle with comfort, control, uh, significance, power, all of these different struggles that we deal with. Okay? And today we're going to be in the first John Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If you got that, go ahead and write got it in the chat. I'll wait for you. Got it. First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Here now the reading of God's word. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. Now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Very word of God. Amen. Today, I want to speak on the struggle with identity. Part two. Being black in America. In black in America. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness. God, I just pray that you would speak through me and in me for your glory. May you be lifted up. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Again, family, when I looked up this word identity in the dictionary, it gave me two different definitions. Look at these with me. It says, the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. Or number two, it says a close similarity or affinity. Again, it says the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. And number two, it says a close similarity or affinity. And the reality with these definitions, if you missed it last week, is that we live in a society where all of us want to be known. And because of this, we have so many different identities or labels that we have come to associate ourselves with. Now, the problem with this is that these particular identities can tend to dictate or dominate our lives. And honestly, what begins to happen is that we get to this place where we want to be known more by this by these particular identities. than we actually want to know God or be known by him. Now, these identities, hear me, y'all, these struggles, they should not be negated are necessarily overlooked 
Because these are who we are, but as you heard Tyler last week where he talked about his struggle with uh, sexual orientation and his own struggle with this, he, if we call ourselves believers, there is this master status of being called by God and being a child of God that dictates who we are and overshadows who we are, which does not mean that we get rid of those other identities and who we are or anything, but it, it also means that we can't necessarily get rid of them in our own power or change who we are in our own power, but instead we come to God with who we are, all our flaws and all, and watch him do a work in us and through us. You cannot miss that. You don't have to change before you come to God. He just just come to me. Just come to me. Which is what, what makes this scripture in 1 John chapter 3 so significant because no matter who we are, one day all we'll be known by is children of God if we believe. No other identity. We'll just be called a son or a daughter of the most high king. So with all that, I I, I wanted to extend this week's topic, the struggle with identity, just a bit, because with everything that's going on in this world with the murder of George Floyd and uh, the peaceful protests, as well as you've seen riots, and and there's a lot of the trauma that's kind of flared up in our society, I, I wanted you to get a small glimpse into the struggle of being black in America. And I'm going to say this, honestly, this this isn't just for white people. Because as I interviewed interviewed the individuals here in our church, and I heard their stories and their struggles, I sat back and I listened and I said, man, I'm not alone. That's, That's me. And it gave me a sense of hope because the lie is that nobody really understands me. Not even of the black people. And the truth is, we're all going through it. And so, family, I pray as you hear them speak, you'll learn, you'll listen, and let God minister to you right where you are. Let him enter in your heart and mess with it a bit. Because here's the reality. If we're going to overcome the racial disparities here in America that have been here for centuries, it's going to take all of us coming together, standing up for the good of other people and speaking up on behalf of those who have been disenfranchised, treated as less than or unjust. And you know why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for all of us when he died on the cross. So family, take a listen to this interview with me. Well, family, as you can see, I have some folks from our church some loved members. I'm thankful for each one of them, um, especially in a season like this. And as I told you before, as we've been walking through the series, uh, the struggle is real. I didn't want to just preach sermons, but I, I also wanted to bring people in to tell you about their struggle, uh, real people, real struggles, following Jesus in the midst of this. And now in this season where we've had uh, the murder or even lynching of, of George Floyd, uh, many of you guys have have jumped in. I've seen your social media feeds, Black Lives Matter, and everything that's happening. But I wanted you to get a, a just to kind of look into the Black experience as we talk about identity, uh, part two. As last week, you heard me talk about it a little bit in this, this want to be known and this uh, want to be understood. And uh, many people say, well, all lives matter. And, and I would tell you that all lives can't matter unless Black Lives Matter until Black Lives Matter. And so here's the reality. I want you to be able to jump into our story. I want you to be able to hear the different people here because 
there is a lie that says every every person that's black has the same experience. We don't. Uh, and so I want you to hear them talk about their experience and how they felt towards George Floyd and what happened there, um, as well as their workplaces and um, and how they walk after Jesus in this season. So without further ado, y'all, thanks for jumping on. If you would just open up and tell us a little about yourself. Who are you? Um, what's your name? Where, you, where are you from? And where do you live in the city? Uh, so I'll start us off. Hey, everyone. I'm Grace. Um, I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee, but moved to Chicago about two years ago, and I'm living in the Little Italy area. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is John Brownlee. I'm born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been living in Evanston, Illinois for the last three years with my family. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Aisha Lavinier. I am from Houston, Texas, born and raised, and um, lived in London for a while, met my husband there, and then been in Chicago now, gosh, going on 10 years. Um, and we live in Bronzeville, a neighborhood in Chicago. What's going on, everybody? Uh, my name is Terrence Gadsden. I'm born and raised in Tinton Falls, New Jersey. Um, I moved to Chicago way back in 2002. Um, I lived in the North Lawndale community for about 12 years. And um, a few years ago, my wife and I, we moved, our family moved to Evanston. And now we live in Skokie on the border of Saginaw and, uh, and Skokie. So that's what's up. Good. Thank you guys again for jumping on. I want to jump right into our first question. And I'm going to start with you, John. I just want to hear, what was your reaction to uh, the murder of George Floyd. When you saw that, if you saw the video, I know many of us haven't been able to watch it, but if you saw that and just hearing about the, the gruesome murder of, of, of George Floyd and the many before, what was your reaction to that when you first saw this? Pastor D, my reaction was a familiar feeling that was a mix of slight nausea, rage, frustration, familiar because I felt it so many times since the first time I was called the N-word as a seven-year-old basketball player. I felt it when I was pulled over in my new car as a college graduation present from my mom on the suspicion of auto theft. I felt it when I was pulled off of a cross-country flight in front of all my colleagues at work and detained on suspicion of drug trafficking. Why nausea? Because I felt sickened. I felt weak watching the last moments of George Floyd's life. Because regardless of your education, family structure survived black, uniquely debilitating. Mm -hmm. um, why rage and frustration? Uh, because I'm really sick of this whole law and order being used as code words for suppressing the voices of people crying out for justice and relief from systemic racism. And why fear? Because I'm a and I'm not able to make sense of this for right now. And I'm afraid and I know that I can't protect them from this. Thanks for sharing, brother. We're gonna have we're having some technical difficulties here, but that's okay. Um, I'm still thankful for being able to be online and get to see you guys' faces. So we're gonna jump in. Um, I'd love to have someone else share about their 
just the impact that George Floyd and what you saw, just your immediate reactions. Thanks again for sharing, John, um, the little, the, the stuff, what we did here. Um, but I'm, I'm gonna have one of my ladies jump in and tell me about your reaction. Just what was it like when you, you saw the murder of George Floyd? Um, I'll, I'll go next. Um, you know, one, one, a few of the words that John used, I think it's the same words I would use. I think immediately, well, so first I've never watched the whole video. I can't, um, when I heard him call for his mom and I could see that he was not under the age of 18, that kind of broke me more than where I was already broken. Uh, and it's a familiar feeling because we've seen um, these videos so much in the past decade and the sense of nausea is such a good word for me because um, yeah, I felt sick and kind of like, it's like you can't really think about anything else um, watching a human being die knowing he's done nothing to deserve or to, you know, put him, realistically put himself in that situation. There's nothing he could have known would put him in that situation. And so all of those feelings just rushed up. And then, you know, I have a black husband and a, a black son who are uh, walking around the city of Chicago. And um, that just, I talked to my children about race and I've, I've we, my husband and I have spoken to our kids about race since honestly, before, as soon as they could speak, we're very conscious about race because you know that's why we chose to live in Bronzeville. Um, because I think, you know, it, you can't ignore race. Um, we aren't naive and we don't believe the world is colorblind and, and, you know, I don't want the world to be colorblind, but watching that video, it's just a feeling we've had before. And yet I'm someone who, you know, I'm forever optimistic because I, my faith is in Jesus, right? And so watching the video, I still at this very moment have hope and faith that those officers will be convicted. Um, uh, it, it it can be a defeating feeling watching that video and and later having to speak to my son about what the video meant. He never he hasn't seen it. I would never show him that video, but he sees everything going on around us. And and um, I don't want him to I don't want him to learn about this other than from his parents. And so um, it's just been a almost like a burden. It's been you know a sick feeling this this entire time. Just nauseous. Yeah. Grace, my sister, what would you have to that? Thanks, Aisha, for sharing that with us. Um, I would, I mean, some of the same sentiments, but I think my immediate, if I'm going to be just completely honest, uh, my immediate reaction was numbness um, because this is something that, although it's tragic, it is sad and it's unacceptable, it's so common and it's so. Um, it, this is just a something that happens in the life of Black people every single day. Um, and so my immediate reaction was numbness, uh, thought that like, oh, an another, you know, another Black man dies, you know, another murder not accounted for, another life gone that no one is going to care about, um, another instance where um, black men and um, black people in general are just told you don't matter or you um, your life is not important and so my immediate reaction was just to feel numb like here we go again and I think after that came the sadness and then came the hopelessness and the anger 
Um, and because I'm a believer, um, thankfully, I, I got to a place where, like Aisha said, of hopefulness, of knowing that, you know, God is still in control. Um, but um, the immediate reaction was just to be numb to the to the realities of our world. Yeah, definitely. And I, I hear that the numbness there with a story that's and a scene that's all too real and sadly too familiar. Um, Terrence, man, what would you add to that? What was your reaction when you saw the murder of George Floyd? Yeah, I I, um, I share a lot of the similar feelings. I was angry at first. I was angered and I was sad. I felt just a bunch of emotions. I also thought about when I first moved to Chicago, just kind of flashbacks when I first moved to Chicago, my first nine months living in the city, I was pulled over four times. Um, and I remember the first time I was pulled over as a Cambrini Green, I was coming from church, a, ch a youth service. And I remember telling the officer um, that I was a pastor and he, 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 he cursed at me. He said, man, I don't care about that. You know, we got all these type of, you know, priests, you know, doing all these things to kids. And, and so it, it was, it just brought me back to, to my experience in Chicago, particularly in, in just feeling helpless. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to do something. I wanted to tell, you know, somebody, yo, help them. And, you know, but I just, I felt sad, I felt angered. And I, I was even thinking like, so how, how, we, how are people going to spin it now? How is, you know, what are people going to say now? And uh, what's, the, what's the excuse now? Um, after the countless videos we've seen from Rodney King to Eric Gardner, the list goes on and on. So um, that's, that, those were my initial reactions. It brought me back to like, that could have been me. Yeah. And in fact, I was pulled over. I was, you know, hemmed up on the side of a car. And it wasn't nothing but the grace of God that those three officers, you know, let me go. Uh, and I, I'll never forget that. That was that was 2002, man, years ago. And I'll never forget that. And so I just it brought me back to that moment. And um, it was just it, and I, I made myself watch the whole thing. And um, and it, it was just it was just yeah, it was just it was just it was just hard. Definitely. It's a, it's a hard scene and it's, it's still hard to even come to grasp what actually went down and just and really what's going on in our souls, and especially in the midst of a pandemic. It's so many things that are happening right now. And as you spoke about being pulled over, you know, you have the acronym uh, DWB, you know, driving while black, you know, so we, we understand, we, if you didn't know that, that's what that means. Uh, so if you ever hear somebody say DWB, that's what it is. It's the fact that black people are always on alert when they're driving their cars, knowing that at any time they can be pulled over for any apparent reason, not even and doing anything wrong. And, and that's not to say that all police officers are bad, but at the same time, we're always on alert. And so when you see that happening with George, George Floyd, it's easy to say that, that, that could have been me easily. Um, no, regardless of my credentials or anything. And speaking of that, just thinking about credentials and where we are, I would love for you guys to just kind of give us some, uh, shed some light into the experience, whether that be on your jobs, just as a black person in your jobs, how you've been treated, maybe that's in the community. Uh, just what has that been like for you? How have you been kind of, whether it be treated as less than, or just just how, how has that identity been, not even necessarily been shaped by others, but how do people look at you um, as a black person in the job where you are in your community? I'd love for you guys to jump in with that one. Uh, I'm gonna go back to you, Terrence, and just start off with you in terms of that. Yeah, so, I mean, I've experienced, I, I've experienced, you know, racism in, in, in in Christian settings and non-Christian settings, so for 
the first 12 years that I was in Chicago, I was, I was a student pastor on the West side uh, and a coach. And uh, I can remember taking students to different events and, and parents and leaders not believing that I was the youth pastor, right? Wanted to know, did you go to college? Did you, did you go to seminary? Like, like, are you like, like almost I had to show them my degrees, like, no. And I didn't look like the typical pastor I had long locks. And it was just, it was, it was, it was just being in these circles where you're like, you have to prove that I'm Christian enough. Right. Like, and, um, just, and so I've had to battle those, you know, um, going to conferences and seeing that, you know, a lot of African-Americans can only speak about urban ministry, but you don't see them talking about theology and apologetics and homiletics. And so you see it played out in every, every facet of society in every, every realm. And so for me, um, even now, as, I, as I'm, a, I'm a campus pastor and athletic chaplain at North Park University, so in the academic setting, it's the same thing. And so um, I'm not with the fitted and, you know, in, in, you know, in the baggy denims in the academic setting, but it's the same thing, even if I'm G'd up, right? If I have a suit on, if I'm, you know, well, well looking nice, you know, it's like, it's still like, what, did you go to college? I'm like, yeah. I've had to tell colleagues, like, I wouldn't be working here if I didn't, <laughs> if I didn't have, you know, like, come on, is that a serious question? And even at, as now as, as a doctoral student, it's like, are, are you, are you, what? Like, yes. <laughs> so it's just, it's just, it's interesting um, seeing people's reactions when they, in different circles, particularly in Christian circles that yes, I'm black. Yes, I'm educated. And, and, and yes, I, I talk with slang and I wear, you know, fitted caps. And so, I, and I love Jesus. So I see it in all, I, I've seen it in every, every realm. And it's, it's, to me, it's just crazy. It's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. Exhausting. And just kind of always having to be on, um, and, and the, wear these different hats, if you want to say. And so thanks for sharing that. Aisha, I'm going to ask you too, because you, you shared some with me before in terms of your experience being a lawyer, uh, just and a mom, even of, of of a son and a daughter, wife to a black man, all of this, you know, you have all these different circles that you enter in. So just shed some light on what's your experience been like. So um, I'll speak a little bit about my work experience. First, I am a, a lawyer. I pr practice mergers and acquisitions. My clients are private equity funds and their portfolio companies. And I help them buy and sell companies, um, public and private. So um, there are not, <laughs> My clients aren't people of color. Um, there are hardly any women. They are white men. Mm. And um, my colleagues, when I first started, I, I work at the highest grossing firm in the world, okay? And based here in Chicago. And my group, when I started, um, there were no African-American attorneys in my group. There were others in the firm, um, but not in my group. And to this day, I am now, you know, one of the most senior, just because they, I've had a hand in getting others hired, but they're all junior to me. And yet, and still, my career isn't, you know, where it ultimately, I want it to be at this place, it will happen in the future. So there's still ladder for me to climb, right? In other words, influence for me to still hopefully get to affect change. What has that looked like? It's ha it, it has looked like me <laughs> combating a lot of uh, assumptions and a lot of perceptions. Um, one of which is if you're a black attorney, you have no long-term goals to be successful at this firm. Easy to say, because if you look to your left and look to your right, there are there is no one else who looks like you. 
Mm. Um, I've had several people on elevators kind of just assume that you know, maybe I was an assistant or something like that. That happened a long time ago when I first started. Now I think, you know, I've been there for seven years. I think people know who I am. Um, but the, the burden, I'll say, of being the Black attorney at the firm and having to uh, kind of answer for what it means to be Black in any given instance is really highlighted, for example, right now. Mm-hmm. I have a second job that I'm not paid for, um, that my white colleagues do not have to do, and that is to fill all of the diversity issues. And so specifically with George Floyd right now, I was on the phone until nine, 10 o'clock. And I, I work a lot as Pastor D knows. Um, <laughs> and I have kids and I have a husband. And, um, and then I have this second job that I didn't necessarily go to law school for and I didn't sign up for, but I'm, you know, I feel like, well, it's on me to do um, for my community. Right. And um, that's me fielding the questions and the hurt and the pain and the issues with the black associates. Um, it's, you know, I have partners calling me and saying, Hey, I need you to, what do I do with this associate who's feeling this way? I talk to the chairman of our firm on a regular basis about certain things. And the COO called me today and it's just, you know, it's, um, I'm someone who can handle that type of job, but it's unfortunate that that's something that the diverse, the black attorney has to do. Um, and it shouldn't be the case. Right. And, you know, something like this, you would hope there's just, um, that it would strike the humanity in everyone, even beyond race. And it's not always the case. And so, um, you know, being, being, being a black attorney at a law firm is a, uh, as I'm sure John can probably talk a little bit about where he's also a lawyer, as I know, it's a struggle. There've been studies on the fact that um, if, if a partner receives work from a black, what they perceive to be a black associate versus what they perceive to be a white associate, same credentials, both went to Harvard, both with three years experience, they'll literally find more errors in the black associates document versus the white associates document. And it's the exact same document. It's just that when they were given the paper, they were told one person was black and one person was white. And so just to know those kinds of things, when you enter into a workplace like mine, you're ready to go against them. You already know you have to be I always say like two times as good. I think I need to be three times as good. I need to be perfect at all times. I can't be, you know, my confidence level has to match that of the average man who's walking around, whether or not his confidence level should be that level. And that's how I operate on a daily basis all the time at work. And so I know a lot of that has to do with I'm of color and a lot of it is has to do with me being a woman. Um, But it's a, it's a, you know, daily battle. And I'm, I'm grateful that now I do have a platform. I have the ear of the influential people at my firm. And so they listen to me and, you know, um, and I don't take that lightly and I hope that I can affect change. But again, it's not something that, you know, I don't think that it's, it's unfair if some might say that a black person has to do that, but, um, you know, I take it on and I feel like it's part of my responsibility, but, you know, I also don't think that every black person needs to feel that way. Right. Right. Definitely. And yeah, that whole idea, you said it too, working twice as hard and sometimes three times as hard. And I would love to hear, John, if you got some better internet, just in terms of yeah. what it looks like, because I've heard your story in a lot of ways. And yeah. that Drake's song started from the bottom. Now we're here, like you you started. And that's not, I'm not even just talking about the color of your skin, but having to walk yeah. through. Um, I'd love to hear just, just a little bit of your experience too. Sure. I, for me, you know, I'll just start by saying it feels like we, as a Black people, are never given the benefit of the doubt. 
And, you know, when, when you, to Taisha's point, you have to succeed twice as well and you only have to fail half as bad. Mm-hmm. I started with a large, large company. Y'all have probably heard of, you probably drink the product. Um, in my hometown when I was 17 as an intern. And I stayed there basically for 28 years um, and, and worked my way up. I'm fortunate to have worked my way into a pretty nice position. I was the first uh, black chief of staff to the chairman and CEO of the company. Um, and while that afforded me a lot of opportunities, which I'm forever grateful for, I was always struck by those little instances where I was reminded, doesn't matter what position you're in, you're not going to be given the benefit of the doubt. Uh, We would walk into situations, um, I'd be walking with some of my direct reports, um, and they would assume that some of my direct reports were were my managers, or they were my boss. And um, it was really fascinating. We walked into a store one time, we were doing a store visit, and the store manager went to one of my vice presidents who reports to me and was asking him all these questions, strategic questions. And the vice president looked at him and said, uh, well, you're going to have to talk to my boss about that. You should have seen that store manager's jaw drop when he realized that this black man, the only black person in this huge entourage was, was the boss. And it gets exhausting to have to try and explain every time there's an Eric Garner, every time there's a Philando Castile, every time there's a, you know, insert murdered black person name here, you have to explain why you're upset or you have to justify and explain why you're filled with rage. But at the same time, to some extent, you have to almost suppress that in these environments where you are the only for the sake of I hate to say this, going along to get along. And I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit there have been those times where my rage has been suppressed for the sake of trying to be as articulate and as I think Chris Rock would say, oh, he speaks so well, for the sake of coming across like that. But inside, I'm boiling. And it's exhausting because the, the downside of it is when you then come home to your wife or your children and you have to unload or unleash, they're the victims of this pent-up frustration that you've been holding in all day long. Um, so my journey with my company in the corporate environment, it's been, it's been, it's been a long one. Um, I retired from there last year. Um, but to Aisha's point, it's an exhausting journey when you feel like you're the only one, you're all on an island. And yes, you do feel responsible to pull someone up behind you. I felt responsible every day to make sure there was some youngster coming up behind me in the pipeline. So when I leave, you know, there will be no voice there at all. But um, I'm telling you, it's, it's an exhausting, long, drawn out experience. Definitely. Thanks for sharing that. It's a, it is that exhausting experience. And I, I would say, I've heard some of you all say that you're numb in this season. It's, it's tough because you still have to put this face on and still go to work. Um, you still have to explain to people, as you said, a, a whole other job, uh, Aisha, where you're not at, you're not getting paid. And I think all of us feel that on a, on a certain level and what we're having to do. And I told some folks this week, it's okay to take a black day off. I think right now you, 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 you need that um, in a sense, because on top of all of that, you guys are still processing everything that's going on. And 
um, I would just say a word to, and I've said this before to my white brothers and sisters, like there's many resources out there that you can pick up. We have the joy of having Google now. Um, and there's so many sermons on this, even myself has preached. Um, but in this season, like try to figure out proximity with people and cross that line. Um, and, and instead of trying to ask what to do, listen to the, these voices, listen to what they're saying, listen to their hearts and learn how to feel what they're feeling. It's very important to meet us, meet people where they are. That's exactly what Jesus did. And so speaking of that, Grace, I'm going to come to you with this last question, because your experience, even right now, being in, in, in ministry, um, you're having to experience this going through it all, um, processing it, but then also helping other people process it on a, on a, on a ministerial level. So what's that been like for you? And then I want you to just couple that with, you know, how do you keep going? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ keep you going as a black person um, in the, in, in today right now? Um, yeah. So I connect with um, a lot of what's been said already, the um, day in day out stuffing, I call it of microaggressions or um, just little comments or little experiences every day just stuffing and stuffing and stuffing them down and then when something like this happens uh, feeling like you want to explode um, and then having students you know college students black college students who are experiencing that who are going through that at the same time that you are and you're trying to figure out okay how do I process in a way that I am taking care of myself like I'm taking that time but also not taking too much time because I still have women who are so broken over this I have uh young black college students who um are looking for someone to talk to they're looking for someone to pray with them care about them um at the same time you yourself you're looking for the same thing um and so I I, I think it hasn't been easy, um, but I 100% know that the only thing that has got me through is the gospel, is the fact that there is um, a shepherd who is greater than me that is always taking care of me, that's always thinking for me and uh, making sure I'm okay. Um, and I think without that reality, I just, I was talking to one of my other students the other day, I just don't know how people who don't have a relationship with Jesus right now are I, I honestly, and I'm being 100% honest, I just don't understand how you're making it because without Christ, uh, without that hope, like that, there's nothing to say to people. There's no real, there's no real comfort to give outside of him. And so I think the main thing is that's been helping me is realizing I don't have the perfect words to say, just like I don't have the perfect words to say to myself. Like I don't have the solution. All I can do is point people to God's word and the cross. And so I think that has been, um, it's been good to know that uh, processing doesn't have to be done alone. Um, but at the same time, you can't give what you don't have in like inside of you. So if you're not getting that time with the Lord, if you're only on social media, taking in all the anger and all of, cause there was a week where I was just I was like, yeah, like I'm angry. I'm mad. I'm, I'm sad. And I had nothing to give people. Yeah. Um, so I think what's been helping me is going back to God's word, going back to the gospel that Jesus, man, he was killed by his enemies. Mm. You know, he, he was killed by those who hated him for who he was. Um, and I have someone, a high priest, who really does connect in every way that I suffer. Um, and so that's been a blessing to be able to uh, walk with Christ in that and help others to um, come into that reality, too. 
So that's probably the major way that's been helping me process and make it along with my students. So that's huge. That's huge. That's huge. I'm gonna have Terrence end us with this. Just I would love, man. You've pastored. You've been in different contexts. You've been with youth. You've been with adults. Now you're in this, with students on a collegiate level, um, as well as a campus pastor there. You know what? In in a season like this, especially as a black man, I'm in the midst of injustice. What? How do you rely on Jesus? What keeps you going? Uh, what do you share with others? What do you share with yourself? Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it, it, there's a few things, right? I think if we're honest, uh, you know, the church, when I say the church, the ecclesia, hasn't done a good job of addressing issues like this. You know, when we think about uh, Richard Allen, um, who started the AME Church. He wasn't starting the AME Church, the, the AME Church, because he wanted to have his own church. It was because the Methodist Church was discriminating against Black people. And I think I've, I've been trying to rely on my ancestors and those who have been in the faith, who have dealt with these things before. That's what's given me strength, if I can be honest, um, knowing that, you know, this is not new, right? Uh, there's nothing new that we're facing that, that's, that's new. Um, I even look in, in the, if you look in the Gospels, um, you know, in Acts, we see that even Peter, uh, the head of the church, he had to, he had to repent for his racist tendencies, right? And so um, I, I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've been allowing myself to, to, to go back and to understand, okay, this is this is this is not new, but also, God, um, you 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 are the only hope, right? And so, um, and so, I think that that's been giving me hope, man. I think, and um, you know, I think that it's 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 okay uh, to be to be frustrated. I think the church we have to talk about white supremacy. We have to talk about um, anti-blackness. Um, we have to we have to talk about these things. And um, it, it's, I think the church is the only hope, right? The church is the only hope. Um, God is the only one that can come in and transform lives because what we're dealing with is not just a, 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 a you know, physical battle, but this is like demonic for somebody or people to hate other people because of the color of their skin or because of their gender or whatever. That's demonic, right? And so we need, we need God's spirit to, to help transform lives. And so that, that gives me hope, the fact that, that Christ is the one that, that, that can transform lives. But at the same time, we have to be, as a church, we have to be honest with where we are. We have to be honest that we, 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 have, we have sinned as well, and we have missed the mark, and we have been silent. And now we have to, we have to speak, and we have to do the hard work with the help of the Holy Spirit um, in order for us to be um, the, the church. And I believe the world right now is waiting for the church, um, is looking for the church to be the prophetic voice and also the priestly voice um, in this time. So I don't want to preach, but that's... You know, <laughs> all right, Doc. That's a good word, and 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 that's the reality. And I want to say thank you to all of you for what you've shared today. Um, it's been insightful, probably even more than than you know. Um, and I also want to say thank you for being a renewal. Uh, it's not easy to go to a multi ethnic church, especially as a black person. I will say that um, just because I know that the church historically has been a place where we're able to have not only a sense of identity but somebody when we don't have to we don't have to be anybody. We can just be who we are at church and to walk into a space where um, I don't want you to feel like you're on, um, but you have to be with people that don't look like you and you guys um, are walking that. And I, I believe that our church right now, as I've said before, uh, this is a space where we grow stronger together and we can engage and do life with one another. So uh, I'm thankful for you all because you're not only living it at your jobs, but you're walking, doing life with people in our church and people are, we're crossing those lines. Um, but 
I will say in this season, as you have heard each one of them speak right now, um, it is tough. And this is a time to listen. This is a time to pray. This is a time to engage one another, but it's also time for us to stand up for each other um, and seek justice and the good of our neighbor. Hey, so thanks again, you guys. Next, I'm going to have uh, my, my pastor, uh, my friend, Chris Davis. He's going to jump on and he's going to share from more of a pastoral perspective. And he's also from Missouri area. And so I'm going to have him jump on here in just a second. But thanks again, guys. I appreciate you. Love you all. Take care. Well, family, you just heard from five people from our church. And I'm delighted to have my brother, my friend, one of my best friends and a pastor in San Francisco. He's from the St. Louis area, Chris Davis. Some of you guys are familiar with him and I'm looking forward to what he has to say because we've had a few different talks throughout the last several weeks of just what happened to George Floyd as well as just what's happening in society right now. And I just want you to hear his perspective too as we're in this series, The Struggle Is Real. Uh, Chris, I am not sure how you how much you know, man, but when the struggle was real and we're, we're looking at real people, real struggles and how they're still pursuing Jesus in the midst. And so I would just love to hear from you as from a pastoral perspective. You know, when you saw the murder of jo George Floyd, what were some immediate reactions? What, what did you feel? What, what were you thinking when you saw that incident? Uh, man, um, I got a a text um, the week that the video came out early in the morning uh, from a family member and my heart just sank immediately. Um, uh, I was immediately sick to my stomach like uh, some of the other folks have already um, described. And I think that um, that feeling of sickness um, just immediately uh, began to morph into anger I was angry, I was frustrated, um, man, I, and, and and frankly, I was sad, but I didn't have the tears to cry. Yeah. And, um, but man, I, I was just um, upset. I was just furious uh, just to see this man's life snuffed out uh, for all to see. Um, and uh, the the amount of carelessness um, the amount of viciousness uh, was apparent, and I was sick to my stomach. Uh, he was treated in an inhumane way, um, uh, and in my mind, you know, he was treated like three fifths a person. Yeah. Um, he was he was he was treated as if he were not human. And um, anytime you can put your your knee upon the neck of another human being for nearly nine minutes. Um, anytime you can use your knee as a deadly weapon, um, my, my heart was ripped out of my chest, man. Uh, I was extremely frustrated. Man, man, and uh, thanks for sharing all that. And we, we've talked about this quite a bit, uh, just the similar backgrounds and where we've come from and now pastoring multi-ethnic churches. I just got one more question for you. In light of everything that's gone on, um, you heard from the other individuals, all of them said they still have some type of hope. Now, as a black man, as, as a black pastor of a multi-ethnic church, I know for myself, even for you too, that sometimes that hope, because you see that this man's life didn't matter, 
that man is it is there really hope but i want to ask you what what is it that keeps you going how do you encourage yourself how do you encourage your church to just keep looking to jesus right now and could you just take us there a little bit what's that hope look like yeah man i um can i be real and say that it's hard to get there some days yeah that um uh that it's a real fight to 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 uh, fight through the uh, the anger and to push through the bitterness and to uh, fight my way through the 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 sickness and the frustration um, and yet um, to fight through those things and cling to the the hope um, of the cross and an empty tomb and man that what else is there in in moments like this? Um, and I just, I'm reminded that uh, Jesus was oppressed so that you and I can be free from oppression. Amen. I'm reminded that Jesus was broken down, um, that Jesus was talked about so that you and I can be free from it. His dignity was ripped away so that you and I yeah. uh, can be blessed with the God-given dignity that he's placed upon our lives. Uh, his value was stripped away at the cross of Christ so that we can be full of value that was given to us uh, as we were created in the image of God. And that gives me hope, man, that, that the reality that Jesus has suffered in our place and for our sin gives me hope. And I can tell you as well, man, the, the empty tomb gives me hope today. Yeah. Um, through the tears, through the heaviness, um, through the, uh, the anger, the, the tomb, the empty tomb gives me hope because it reminds me that Christ has conquered sin and death. And the reality is uh, we feel it, we, we sense it, um, institutional, systemic racism and racial hostility is a very real thing. But even that, even though we feel it even today, uh, even that has been conquered by the empty tomb. And that gives me hope that we can actually have victory because of the empty tomb. And though we may have to hit the streets, though we may need to protest and, and to express ourselves and to speak up against the powers that be and the systemic injustices uh, that exist in this country, uh, one day, someday, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. One day, someday, there'll be no more knees pressing down on our necks. Uh, the knees of injustice and the knees of the brokenness that's all around us. Uh, the knees of the disparity in, um, in education. The knees of the, the skewed criminal justice system. The knees... Um, pressed down even in lending practices in the banking industry. Uh, one day, someday, uh, it will all be no more. No, no longer be knees pressed down on our necks. Amen. Amen. Um, and the reality is the empty tomb gives us that hope and we can rest and trust in it today yeah. as hard as it may be. That's the hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. And I... I cling to the reality, man, that uh, the, the cross reminds us that God has reconciled us to one another uh, and he's reconciled us to himself. 
Yeah. And we can we can understand that. We, we, we can say yes to that today because the cross says you can now have right fellowship with God and you can now have right fellowship with one another. That gives me hope. That gives me hope in the midst of despair. That gives me hope in the midst of uh, the heaviness. And, mm. and I cling to it. And I think the church renewal, uh, Church Chicago should cling to um, the hope of the cross, hope of the in- empty tomb as well. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother, for your words. Friends, that was good, wasn't it? Family, as you heard all of them speak about hope, and as I said in the beginning, our hope has to rest slowly in the finished work of Christ. You heard Pastor Chris talk about the empty tomb. It's the fact that if we believe we're all God's children, Hear me, because every other identity, my gender, my race, my sexual orientation, will fail me in one way or another. Whether that's because of somebody else's perception of me, or it's because I choose to hold this identity above all else in my life. And it honestly does not have the foundation to hold me. But I will say this. There is a God who created me who accepts me as I am and says, come to me, which gives me hope. But for all of us, while we're here on this earth, I need you to hear me with this. As we're here on this earth, we have to do the hard work of crossing lines with others that are different than us, learning to listen, learning to love, And learning to live for the betterment of other people, not because we just want to, but seemingly because that's what Jesus did for us. So hear me. Because with that. I don't want heaven to just be a dream. That we look forward to in the distant future. But friends, if we work. For the betterment of other people and we cross lines with other individuals that are different than us. Friends, we could see a little bit of the reality of heaven here on earth with every tongue, tribe, and nation coming together because we worship Jesus. Now, 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 hear me. I know that struggle is real right now. That's hard, especially right now in today's society. But as I've said week in and week out, I need you to believe with me and believe that God is greater. He's greater. Amen. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. God, I just pray that even right now that you would cover us, God, and you keep us in your hands. That we learn to love, that we learn to listen, that we learn to hear that we would cross lines and do life with individuals that are different than us, although it's hard, but doing so because you did that for us and we want to see your glory shine throughout this earth and see the end racism and systemic injustice and divisions that you didn't put here, God. But get a little bit of that heaven and that sight of being together with all one another because the identity that will count that we're children of God. 
Father, we love you. We thank you. We give you all the praise, all the honor and the glory. It's in your name we say. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 930 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.